multifamily apartments versus single family, the one huge difference is that you see an apartment, you should see it as a business. It is evaluated like a business as far as financing and selling the property. You're looking exactly at what are the expenses, what is the income, and how you can really drive property. So every dollar you make or save in a multifamily asset really affects your bottom line. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. On this episode, we have Cherry Chen. Cherry is a full-time physician, apartment syndicator, and the founder of the Real Estate Physician Platform, a group created to empower other physician investors who are looking to invest in real estate for passive streams of income with over 800 members in their investor circle. In this episode, Cherry will tell us what it's like investing in apartment complexes while holding a full-time job and why multifamily investments are an amazing asset class to invest in. If you have a busy job and are wondering how to break into the real estate investing field, then you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Cherry, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah. Hey, Sean. Thanks a lot for having me on your show. Really enjoyed your podcast. So my name is Cherry Chen. I'm a full-time physician here. I'm located in Portland, Oregon. I have also invested in real estate, which is, I think, you know, how we connected. So I do that when I'm not working in medicine, both passively and actively, and we can kind of dig into the story and what that means. Absolutely. And it's a pleasure having you on the show. So go ahead and just tell us how you got into real estate investing and how you got into the passive side. Yeah, so I've been investing passively for about four years now. And I think, you know, people think passive means a couple of different things. But for me, that meant putting my money to work for me, basically. And so I think everyone, you know, invests on some level, you know, whether it be the stock market, Wall Street, your retirement funds, real estate is popular. Everyone invests on some level. And and for me, when I started about four years ago, I wanted to, you know, see what was out there besides the stock market. I had like, you know, invested in my 401k. And so I started looking at real estate. And I think most people think real estate is like you go get a single family rental and, you know, it looks all nice. I'm going to do an Airbnb and it's going to be great. I get to decorate it and all that. So that's kind of the route I first started digging, but I never did any real estate single family rentals. And learned about multifamily, then learned about, you know, commercial real estate and syndications and kind of educated myself from that end to figure out, you know, hey, these would be nice investments to put my capital to work for me. What got you excited about multifamily instead of just buying a single family property and starting with that? Yeah. So I think looking back now, real estate, there's so many ways to do it. It's a vehicle, right? Now I talk to you know, my investors or my family and friends who also invest in real estate, it's really comes down to, I think, a couple core things for me. It was, 
you know, how active or passive I wanted to be and quote, what is the risk of the investment? And so there's a lot of differences when it comes to a multifamily versus a single family in terms of its financing, its operations, uh, its scale, its leverage. So a lot of, and it's more so like a business, right? Because evaluation, that's the other one, the valuation. So in terms of, you know, putting my money to work for me and I want it to use my capital to trade for time versus in my W-2 job, I'm trading my time for my capital. So, yeah. Was it scary to, you know, think about giving money to someone else to manage for you instead of trusting yourself and saying, I can do it all myself? Yeah, I think that's funny because actually, you know, I don't know what it is with people's mind shift because when you invest in your 401k, right, in your retirement account, that's basically what you're doing, right? You're giving it to a fund. Most people are. And we don't ask ourselves that question. You know, when we invest or contribute a good amount to our 401k through work, you don't ask, well, who is managing my money? And where is it going into? What are the fees? What are my returns? You know, but yes, it can be scary because you're putting your hard earned money to work. So my very first investment was after I, you know, educated myself for probably like three to six months, just like Googling, learning. The great thing about now is there's so many podcasts like yours. There's so many forums. There's conferences. You can go to meet people. And I just kind of started like that. Yeah. Do you want to give a shout out to some of the favorite ones that you listen to? Favorite podcasts? I actually listen to a lot on like mindset more so, but there's a lot of ones in commercial real estate. I think the very popular ones are like, you know, Bigger Pockets or um, Joe Fairless. Those are kind of the two that come, come to my mind, but there's a lot. Yeah. In 2018, I was also really into buying into the whole apartment building syndication thing. So I was listening to like Michael Blanc a lot and Joe Fairless and even Old Capital Podcast. I even had James Ding on my show before as well. And yeah, yeah, you learn a lot from these podcasts. It's very surprising. And then by hearing the stories over and over again, it makes it seem not as scary. But you know, for a sole proprietor trying to tackle like a 200 unit apartment complex, that's, that's pretty nuts. Yeah, I think it's uh, whether you are, um, you know, you just want to invest or you want to be more active, just like anything else. And, you know, you do real estate, too, is that there's a team, right? It's not one person who's doing it. Um, And so just like, you know, I think no matter what kind of work we do or occupation, there's usually some sort of team. There's a manager. There's a person who really does the day to day tasks. There's, you know, and so to realize no one does it by themselves. I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. So after those three to six months of studying on your own, what was your mindset like and what were you looking for when it came to choosing someone to invest with and what kind of property type were you looking to invest in? Yeah, so I think so really when I did my education, one distinguishing factor was that multifamily apartments versus single family, the one huge difference is that you see an apartment, you should see it as a business. You shouldn't see it as oh, it's a real estate. It is real estate, but it is operated like a business. It is evaluated like a business as far as financing and selling the property. You're looking exactly at what are the expenses, what is the income, and how you can really drive property. So every dollar you make or save in a multifamily asset really affects your bottom line. In single family, it's a little bit different, right? You can you know, put an extra 10K in your kitchen and it looks really nice, but it's not going to sell for an extra 10K or whatever it is based on the market around it. And so in that way, that appreciation, which a lot of real estate investors look for, that, oh, maybe in five years, it'll appreciate, I'll get a ton of equity. In multifamily, um, I think it's very much more uh, what you'll hear is forced appreciation. We can 
actually renovate the units and it'll increase the rent, right? Or we can decrease expenses on some level that'll also help the value of the property. So I think one big part is the valuation of it and you see it as a business. So I think coming from an investor standpoint, all of that is very objective, not subjective. So, but you know, there are also subjective parts of it, but that's kind of one big part. And the other part of it is the scale. So you can leverage um, in real estate. It's really all about leveraging, whether it's, you know, your money or your time or your effort or somebody else's resources like that. So in multifamily, in a hundred unit apartment complex, I have that scale. As an investor, if for some reason, you know, two people move out of the apartment complex next month, I can predictably still say, I'm going to get my distributions, right? So as an investor, I care about predictability and stability. I don't want my portfolio dropping 30% tomorrow and and then swing back and swing down. And that predictability, that stability comes in the form of distributions to me as an investor. That's money in my pocket rather than the stock market where it's unrealized gain or loss um, and it goes up and down. And going back to the question, like let's say you are bought, like your your mindset is like, okay, I'm going to go into multifamily properties instead of single family ones. What do you do next? Like how do you know who to invest with and where do you even buy these apartment complexes? Yes. The people who, you know, put these deals together, they're called sponsors or the general partner, right? So it's a team. It's usually more than one person. And so it really comes down to just like in anything, especially real estate, the relationship, meaning, well, you get to know them, right? Like as people, uh, you get to know them as people, like their character, their personality, you know, but also then as a firm, what kind of assets do they invest into? Even within multifamily, there's, you know, the newer assets, there's the really distressed assets. So uh, just because, you know, they say they have a great track record, for example, but maybe they do really distressed assets that take a lot of rehab, a lot of upfront fixing to drive that value in that apartment. If I, as an investor, I'm not comfortable with that, then that doesn't mean just because they're a great sponsor with a great track record that they're right fit for me, right? So one, understanding who's on the team. And then two, what is their team's like, uh, what is their niche? Do they only focus in, you know, in Dallas, and they only focus on the really new projects versus the really distressed projects. And then you get to know how they do their deals, right? How do they operate their deals? What makes them special? There's a lot of these teams out there. And, and a lot of the investors questions comes down to how do I trust them? So yeah. Yeah, go ahead into it. How do you vet your sponsor? Yeah, so ideally, I meet them in person. So I used to live in Dallas and a lot of, you know, conferences were in Dallas because it's been a really great real estate market. So that's how I actually invested in my first one. I went to a conference event and I met the people. So I got to talk to them. I got to look at some of their properties, tour the property with them, have follow up with them. And, you know, then, you know, looked on their website. The great thing is you can search a lot of things about people these days. So any other podcast they've been on to kind of get a feel, you know, what is their personality like? and what kind of projects they do. And so after that, I felt comfortable being in Dallas and the project that I invested in was in Dallas as well. So I think that helped me initially as my very first project because certainly looking back now, there's a lot of questions I could have asked that I didn't even know to ask, right? Um, As far as looking at maybe more details or the projections of the property. So yeah. So I guess now that you know more, what would you have looked for And like, what is your buying criteria? And when you decide I want to get in on this deal or I'm going to pass on this one? Yeah. So I think when I first invested, that was like four years ago and that project actually went really well. And so, but 
I didn't even know there were like, oh, class A properties that are the really nice ones and then A, B, C, D going down, D being the really distressed, the neighborhood you really want to avoid because the tenant profile is just very much different, right? I don't even think I knew that. And then as far as the, you'll hear when looking at these deals, it's called a pro forma, which is, you know, the projections of what we think the property will do. And that's how we can reasonably project what we can return to investors. So there's ways you can look at that to be like, well, hey, how do these numbers make sense? Do they make sense? And as you educate yourself more on, you know, how the sponsor actually underwrites their deals, um, as far as, well, what assumptions are they putting in? Because now there's, you know, crowdfunding websites and there's like, you know, hundreds of deals available to investors, which is great. But all of them can look the same when they're saying, oh, we want to return 80, 18% to investors on average. And all the deals say that. Anybody can project that, but really understanding, well, how did they actually get there? And how do they actually anticipate executing on that is much more important. Are there some things that like new investors should be aware of? Like, for example, if you're not aware, you can see something and they say it's 18%, but a more experienced investor will be able to look at it and be like, nah, this is not correct. Yeah, I mean, so one thing you can look at is the assumptions they use, right? Because so what's nice about an apartment is one, you know, the current building already has occupants, right? Like there's something what we call a trailing three or trailing 12, T3 or T12, which is the just current expenses and revenues of the property. So that's there. That's like facts you can verify. No one's making that up, right? But when we go into a project is then we have to take those numbers and then move forward, project what we can foreseeably achieve with our business plan. So if the plan is to, for example, purchase it, the rents are under market, we're going to put in, you know, $5,000 into each unit to bring the rent up $100, if that's what the sponsor says they do. So, so one, you can verify, well, are the other properties around there, are they getting about $100 more rent for the newer units, right? That's something you can verify. We can't make that up. You take a look at the rent. What is the sponsor using for the assumptions of the rent growth? Like, for example, Dallas has done really well. My family's been there for 30 years. So the last couple of years, like rent's gone up five, even 6%, um, which is not normal. So if a sponsor is saying, hey, look, you know, rent's gone up 5% a year. So we're going to keep projecting the rent is going to go up 5% a year. That, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. But I would definitely say that's not on the conservative side. Conservative sponsors would say maybe 2%, you know, maybe 2%. And then same as expenses. Usually an apartment expense is about 45 to 50% to operate the property. If a sponsor comes in and says, yeah, we can operate at 35%, 40%, you know, it doesn't mean they can't, but you can ask them those questions, right? And so what's nice about it is, yeah, there are numbers and you can ask the sponsor, hey, how did you get this number? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've read a lot of books about the subject too, and they say, yeah, uh, average expenses are going to be about 45 to 50% of your revenue. And it's kind of unfair because what if you are such a good sponsor and you're able to operate at 25% and your buyer of that building is going to be like, well, that's because you have done something, but I have to underwrite under 50%. So I can't give you this discount or this extra price because you've low expenses. Have you ever seen something like that happen before? I mean, so there's like, you know, industry averages, right? But then that's why real estate really comes to understanding the team, right? Because 
And it also depends, you know, how did you buy the property? Did you buy it from like a, you know, a mom and pop owner who ran the property themselves? So on their expense line, it's going to say property management for personnel is like zero, right? But if you're going to come in and say you're going to hire a third party property management team, which is usually what we do, that number is not going to be zero. And your expenses are going to be foreseeably much higher than what was reported based on when you bought the property. So it really comes to there's just a lot of moving parts. But I think as investors, it's just one, obviously, you have to educate yourself about the asset of what you're investing in. But, you know, it's it's like a very fine balance because you're like, I just want to invest my money, put it to work. But you have to feel comfortable and be able to sleep at night, you know, because you understand what your money is actually doing. Yeah. So, yeah. Are there any other rules of thumb that you think new investors should kind of be aware of? Like, like you say, 2% for rent increase is pretty standard or 45% for expenses pretty standard? Yeah, rent. So like, there's some good questions, you know, investors can ask if they're looking at a deal. Well, one other thing to look at is definitely the the leverage or the financing of the deal. And because we as investors, we were like, oh, we're giving our money. But really, the biggest owners in the project remain the bank, they finance about 65 to 80% of the project, just like a single family home. So, you know, just like your single family home, when you go purchase it, it, you have to watch how much leverage, how much finance you're putting on on into it, right? So most of these projects, you don't want it to be over leveraged, right? Because then if you can't collect the rent, or you can't increase the rent, like in a time like now, then you can't pay your mortgage, right? So looking at how much is it financed to make sure it's not over leveraged. And in commercial real estate, that number is, that's called debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. So on the pro forma, it'll say, hey, debt service coverage ratio of 1.25, for example. That means the property generates $1.25 for every dollar that we have to pay to our bank, right? So that's pretty healthy. And that's what usually most banks require. So if you're looking at a project and they're like, oh, you know, we're going to do great. We're going to increase the rents, et cetera, et cetera. But our debt service coverage ratio is 1.1, 1.05. That would ring a bell, right? So this like some broad markers you can look at initially before getting into all the nitty gritty of the numbers. Is there a specific buying criteria that you look at before putting your money down? So I personally, so like multifamily, usually it's greater than 100 units because that's what allows you to have that scale. If it's less than that and like the anything less than usually about 80 units, you don't have that that power in, in leveraging so many units to go to work for you, you know. And so usually it's about 100 units plus. I prefer bigger markets like Dallas or Houston or Austin because you not only want to look at, oh, these are places, you know, people are moving to. So there's demand, right? A lot of jobs, lots, lots of demand, but also if you're looking to sell the property, there's going to be a lot more buyers than if you're in, in a tertiary market in like the Midwest, you know, middle of nowhere or whatnot. So not only thinking about when you're going in to buy it, but what are the exit scenarios? Dallas, for example, probably pretty rosy picture because so many headquarters are moving there and that's like a 30 year move for companies, right? So I don't anticipate in five years that that's going to change because these companies have 30-year plans, right, when they move. Yes, for example. Yeah. I was wondering, who are the buyers of your syndicated properties? Because you go in there, you fix them all up, and everyone's kind of teaching the same thing. Like, you want to buy a distressed asset to then fix up, increase your rents, increase NOI, and then sell. 
who is the buyer that will buy at that higher price? Yeah. So, I mean, it's similar in terms of like, I guess if you were investing like a single family in terms of, you know, what is the buyer's objective, right? And what is the seller's objective, which can be just all across the board for real estate. And that's what kind of makes real estate fun in a way, because value is is created based on what you want and what you get, right? So, so most of these, you know, we will increase rent, we will improve the value, but maybe we leave 20% or 30% of the units unrenovated so that somebody coming in can see that there's still value to provide for the property, right? So most of the buyers are typically, you know, other sponsorship groups, just like us, right? Because maybe they sold another smaller property, like a 70 unit, and they want to move into a 100 unit property. So it's kind of just all across the board, a lot of different scenarios. But typically, it's like another sponsor like us or REITs, you know, Real Estate Investment Trust. If it's a nice new property that's pretty stabilized because they don't want to do the work. They're not in the work to manage or upgrade properties. They're in it to put their money in and provide a pretty stable, low return to their investors. So REITs, that's a common one. That's so interesting. So you always leave meat on the bone for the next person so that they can also make some profit. Yeah. If that's kind of what you intend, who the buyer is going to be, right? Yeah. So that depends. If you're like, if you're selling to a REIT, it needs to be fully stabilized with nothing, nothing to do, right? So it depends. So what kind of asset you're buying into and what your plan is. And that's why it's not just as simple as, oh, I see, I see a, you know, like a rundown home, I'm going to fix it and sell it. Uh, It's much more, this is legitimately a business with a very strategic plan. Yeah. That's awesome. So then what happened next? Like after you got into your first multifamily asset, did you continue investing passively? Yeah. So basically, yeah, that's what I did because I got into one, you know, it was making monthly distributions. That one actually was 11% annually, which was great. I mean, I was like, this is awesome. And I just want to put, you know, work, work at my job and then funnel as much of my income into these projects because the whole point is to build up passive income, right? At least that's my investment philosophy. And so how do you do that? You have to take your earned income and convert it into passive income, either through a business or either through your investments. That's the only way you can kind of, you know, break this tie between trading your time for money. Otherwise, you're just going to work forever. So that was my goal. And so I just kept pouring, you know, my income into more and more of these investments because I felt like I could at least understand it and I could really understand the business plan. Then it's finding out, you know, who are doing these projects and who's doing it well. You know, one of the main issues, not a main issue, but I guess one of the problems is that syndications end in a relatively short time frame. They end in five to seven years, maybe 10 years. But then you have to take that money and then either reinvest it or, you know, you can't just stay in that apartment building forever versus like a single family home. You buy a house, you can have it forever, and it just continuously generates that passive income. Is that ever a factor for you that you have to roll your money in in five to seven years? No, I mean, I actually, I very much like that timeline. So the problem is when you have investors, right? Like if, you know, us two, we had $10 million, we'd go purchase a complex, we could just, you know, keep it there. But when you have groups of like, you know, 50 investors, 75 investors or whatnot, it's kind of hard to keep investors' money for that long. So I think it's funny because I guess in retirement accounts, you're like, your money's just there, right? Until like you're 60 or 70. But for me, I was like five to seven, that's kind of long still. But what happens is 
you know, that's a reasonable time frame to, to for sponsors to say, hey, invest $50,000 of your hard-earned money with us. We will look to double it in a five to seven year time frame, right? And so that's a reasonable amount of time. If, if you told me, Sean, hey, I can double, uh, I can 10 extra money, but I need to keep it for 50 years. I'm going to be like, no, thank you. <laughs> because 50 years, like I can't legitimately grasp, you know, that kind of time frame, illiquidity of my capital. And it, it also happens that, you know, five years is about the business timeline to execute one of these properties. You know, you go in first year or two, you have to renovate, you have to upgrade, kind of implement your, your plan. And then years three and four, you can optimize it, refinance it, and, and, you know, kind of make it as lean or, you know, execute whatever your plan is. And then year five, sell and everyone's happy. So that's kind of the reason why. But I find that to be a reasonable time frame. Yeah, I mean, it is not a big of a deal to roll your money into another syndication or find another investment to park your money in in the future. After you've been doing a couple of these passive syndications, when did you decide that you want to move into the GP side? So it was about August 2018. So I think it was about, you know, about three years ago after I started investing myself passively because I had no intention, honestly. Like I was just like, when I first started investing, I was like, keep throwing my money in there, let it do its work. It's beautiful. Just collect my checks, right? But I kept learning about it because I felt like it was something I could understand. And so I think maybe my physician mindset is, is also very analytical and logical in that way. So I kept learning and going to conferences and took courses of, oh, how do I really underwrite a deal? How do I really put a deal together? Let me talk to brokers. Let me actually underwrite a deal and see if I could put a deal together. And so that's kind of how I learned, you know, A to Z of what the general partners are doing and how they are underwriting. So now I can ask the questions, right? And just, I think in life, it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to know everything, but if you know how to ask the right questions, it can bring you a long ways. And so it was in that process where I learned, okay, nobody just does this alone. There's usually a couple people, if not more, because to be successful, you have to find really great deals. You have to really know how to analyze the properties. You have to really know how to asset manage these properties. And you have to find investors to, who want to invest. You need a deal and you need money. And so basically it was in that process that I actually still don't know how it came about, but I somehow, now what I do is I help other investors, you know, invest into these projects. And so that was about 2018 when I said, oh, there is a role for me to be a part of these projects if I wanted to be. And that was to vet sponsors, to be a part of the team, to analyze and do due diligence on the deals and also educate investors and then bring along. Yeah. So what did you do to get in contact with everyone and to build this system? That's like a long-winded question. Um, so, I mean, it begins, it's just a lot of one-on-ones, honestly. And so it's just you know, talking to, you know, other people at work, but I would never bring it up. I honestly don't even like, so I'm a physician, but see, I I don't ever talk about being a physician out of work and at work, I don't really talk about anything, you know? And so it's a lot of just organic conversations, right? Because people will ask me, oh, what did you do this weekend? Or I can't believe you're not investing in your 401k. You don't want the company match. Are you crazy? And so those conversations are organic and then you can kind of explain and then build the website to have a more, I guess, a more branded platform so you can reach more people. But it still comes down to, you know, people sign up on our website. We go over one-on-one phone calls. 
it still remains that I look at every deal as a passive investor because that is my goal to build passive income. And if the deals I feel really meet our criteria and are and are um, conservative and can bring you know a nice attractive return to other investors, then I share them. This is kind of like a chicken and the egg problem. Were you thinking I want to be on the GP side? I'm going to find a pool of investors first, or I'm going to find a general partner to work with to then raise funds for their deals first? Yeah. So I honestly don't even know the answer to that, but I think it was, I was immersed, right? I I, uh, went to conferences. I met people. I built relationships. I had invested my ton of my money into these projects. So I think I was just so immersed in it and kind of, you know, it's like baby steps. And so, and then finding that, oh, well, you know, there is a role and you bring value this way into these deals and also for your investors. So, and naturally, you know, syndication is a really good fit for, you know, not just physicians, but anybody who's, you know, who has the capital and to put it into an investment that you can't do on your own. You know, most people are not able to go purchase an apartment complex themselves. And it fits well for people who want to stay pretty passive, right? Like, I want to go to work and I don't want to think about this property. Uh, You know, I don't want to have the potential to even be called on this property, even though as minimal or as people might say it is, I don't want that potential to be called. And I tell all my investors, it's like, can I sleep at night, right? Can I sleep at night? And the other thing is to really think about the opportunity cost of not only your money, which is why I stopped investing my 401k, that opportunity cost, but also of your time, of your headspace, of your sanity. Do I really want to go manage, you know, 20 properties? I can, you can, but the opportunity cost is really big. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to go back to this question because I think it's something that's on the top of a lot of people's minds, especially here in the Bay Area. They have very busy jobs, like I'm sure you do, and they don't really have time to go out and you know be a GP without having a, a game plan. So you did obviously an amazing thing. You went to conferences, you educate yourself about the multifamily space, and then you invested in a couple of these syndications. So by this time, a few years later, you have a network of people who will talk to you, right? Like if you talk to Joe Fairless and you're not invested in any of his deals, he doesn't know who you are. He's not going to like spend time to talk to you. But if you're one of his private investors, then like is the next step to then talk to Joe and say, hey, I might have some coworkers who want to invest. Is there a way I can be part of the next GP? Or is there a way I can be part of the GP in the next apartment that you raise money for? And then you start going to talk to your coworkers? Or do you talk to your coworkers first and say, hey, I'll let you know when the next one comes and then work something with Joe? Yeah, that it is like a very chicken and egg. I mean, so it very much is, and what I enjoy about this role is it is very much relationships, relationships with your investors and relationships with the sponsors you want to partner up with, right? Because you are legitimately a part of their team. So even though, you know, you're a good person and you have a great personality, doesn't mean they want to partner with you because this is a potentially five to seven year deal, right? And so it really comes down to, you know, the relationship of getting to know you and what kind of person you are and what is your plan and who are your investors? And so it's just building really good relationships that way. Well, let's talk about your specific case. Like, did you actually have someone that you were going to work with in the beginning? Or did you, I mean, I'm just confused about how the whole process works. Yeah. So like, it wasn't like, oh, here's a sponsor, here's a deal. Okay, let me go 
find my investors now. <laughs> you know, it, I guess it kind of works in concert with each other. And the thing with, you know, being on the sponsorship team, you know, if you're saying, hey, I'm going to bring $100,000, it's like, why would they, you know, like, unless they want to mentor you or you have, you know, maybe potentially, you know, other skill sets, you know, to balance that out. You know, so you need to be able to bring a legitimate amount of money into these deals because you're purchasing a, a $25 million complex, a $50 million complex, you know. So it started small for me, honestly, like mostly, you know, right now it's the real estate physician platform, but it started with my own family and friends and my colleagues. It wasn't like a, a platform with a website by any means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And let's go into that. Talk about the real estate physician platform and like, how are you using it to raise funds for these syndication deals? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's like just our home on the internet or whatever, not because the whole point is that you want to build relationships with people. And so what I'd rather say, because people will say raising capital, and in my mind, I don't do that. I mean, I do, but I like to replace that with building relationships because that's what it is. And so the whole point is to, you know, educate people, find a connection because you'll hear again and again, people invest with people they know, trust and like, right? And so being a physician, so my natural niche of people in my natural network are going to be physicians. And it just so happens physicians trust physicians, right? Like, you know, you have at least a connection. So that's my niche. And the whole point is to, one, you have to be experienced. So I've done so many deals and I've talked to a lot of sponsors and then you have to, you know, educate people. That's how they can come to know you and trust you, right? But it still comes down to getting to know your investor one-on-one -on -one because just even though it's a great, you know, I think it's a great way to invest, it might not be great for you. And so you can't, know that unless you actually, you know, talk to your investors and know their timelines, you know, these projects, you can't pull out tomorrow, just like in the stock market. So they need to understand what are the limitations of an investment like this? Yeah. And so what are you doing on that platform to get more physicians to even find you? You know, I go on, there's physician specific podcasts and physician specific forums. And so that's kind of how I started, uh, besides just talking, you know, my, my own natural network. And so, yeah, that's how I started. So that's interesting because we go to different real estate meetup events and we listen to real estate podcasts and we understand here are some of the baselines, but then you go to like a teacher podcast or a physician podcast that they don't have any clue of apartment buildings, right? They have no idea what syndications are. And they're like, what is this? You can buy a fraction or you can be a part of an LLC that buys apartments. Like this is crazy. Yeah, no, that's why I love podcasts, right? Because it's like, there's a niche for everything. And so, and there's an audience. And so what a lot of people think is like, well, how do I get into real estate? Like, you know, I don't know anybody with money or I don't know, like I've never put a deal together. How do I get started? So one, there's always somebody out there who's done what you think you want to do, at least the next step. And two, we all naturally have our networks, you know, through our job, through our hobbies, through just being you, like, you know, if you're if you're a stay at home dad, there's probably a niche there, you know, or if you're, you know, I don't know, all, all sorts of things, you know, so we all each have our natural networks that you just don't know that you can tap into, right. And if you have something good to offer something really valuable, people can see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then do you like a, a weekly newsletter or some kind of you know, email campaign? 
Uh, yeah, so I send just monthly newsletters, uh, so not to like overwhelm people, but a monthly newsletter that will have, you know, some curated content, because I'm always listening to try to see, you know, what's what's going on, and not to overwhelm people, because the whole point is, people are scared to invest because they're overwhelmed, or they just don't know where to start, right? And so to somehow provide it in a digestible way to people. So a monthly newsletter with like a couple bits of educational content that I found was helpful that I think might audience can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. And then like a call to action button that says, hey, call me for some kind of consultation for how to invest in apartment syndications. Yeah. The whole point is to, you know, get on a phone call so you can actually talk to people and and know what they want, you know, right. I don't care if they actually invest or not, but what I care about is that people are informed. And so what I feel like I'm doing in this role is exactly what I'm doing as a physician is I am taking, you know, a lot of information, which can be overwhelming to some people because it's something you've never heard of and synthesizing in a way that you can digest and helping you, you know, one-on-one make a very informed decision, you know, coming from a good place where, you know, it's neither here nor there if you don't invest or not. But I feel I can sleep at night because I feel like I helped you make an informed decision. Yeah, that's great. You can be a trusted resource without, you know, the ulterior motive of getting you to invest. Right, right. So that's what I think, you know, is nice. And everyone has a niche for you where you can develop that. Absolutely. And because it is 2020, and you are in the apartment space, I have to ask if, you know, your investments or how has this whole COVID-19 pandemic affected your side of the real estate world? Yeah, so I mean, I would say actually, and surprisingly to many operators, April and May turned out actually very well, surprisingly, if not better than as far as collections and rent, people were thinking, Oh, my God, we're going to have like 30% delinquencies. And you know, we've collected, you know, 98%, 99% of our rents. And so and that's why I, you know, nobody knows, like, I can't say for sure. But like, you know, retail and hospitality obviously are not doing well, because, you know, they've forced to shut down. But why I personally invest in these because these are evergreen assets, like, people need food and people need shelter, like no matter what happens. Right. And so I don't invest in hotels. I don't invest in retail shopping malls or strip centers, you know, because these are necessary things just for as long as there's humans, there's going to be need for shelter. And they've been shown to be recession resistant, right? Nothing's a hundred percent recession proof, but recession resistant. And so even through April, May, we've been able to collect rents. And also that's what brings it to the predictability, stability, right? If you have 100 units, it's okay if three people don't pay rent, right? But if you have one unit and that tenant decides they can't pay rent or they don't want to pay rent, you're left with all the costs. That's good because I remember in March and early April, everyone was freaking out. I mean, there was that one article saying that, yeah, 30% won't pay rent on time. And then, of course, there's a whole thing where like it's very, you can't evict someone basically right now if they're not paying rent. So people were thinking, oh, apartments will just not make money. And then you have to sell out a fire, you know, a huge discount and it'll be all bad. But it seems like it's doing okay. Yeah. And I mean, who knows? It might be, it's still way too early to tell, right? Because there was PPP, um, there's been, you know, a lot of government assistance. So maybe that's why it kind of held up. But it's because, you know, people need shelter, right? So in, in hard times, you know, there's going to be help for that. And has this whole like shutdown affected the way that you do business? Because I remember you said that a lot of your networking is done in person through live conferences. 
obviously those are not a thing anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's affected everybody, right? Like even like on the property management level, right? Like you have to, you know, follow guidelines and a lot of, you know, looking at properties, like that's been on hold, right? Because we can't go on property tours or we don't want to renovate the units right now because why expose people if we don't have to, If you know? So it's definitely affected just everyone across the board. Yeah, I am looking forward to the next conference because I like to meet people in, in person. That's the best way to kind of get a gut feel. I mean, I'm the same way, you know, like ever since the shutdown happened, a lot of things have kind of slowed down. Yeah. And it's just because, you know, like when you're not out there meeting people, they tend to forget about you. So that's why you have to use your online platforms. Hopefully that continues, but it's really not the same as meeting someone in person. Yeah, it's not the same. And I don't know, like people predicting left and right what's going to happen or how every industry is going to change. But I think at the core and uh, and what I'll always stress is that relationship. So there's going to be different ways to do it, maybe, but that that has to remain at the core of if you're investing or teaching people how to invest. So what's next for you? I mean, I foresee just kind of growing this network and it's grown very organically, you know, like I don't have a podcast because I, I don't know how to put a podcast together, but like just organically. And the nice thing is that I think it's true for everyone at work, but you know, every physician knows a hundred physicians, right? So if you have a good reputation, if you bring good value, you start getting referrals, right? So now we're getting a lot of referrals. So you don't have to quote, work as hard to get, you know, your next investor or whatnot. But that's the way I like to do it once going back again. Like if people have had a good experience with you, it, they will naturally refer you, right? So it's just kind of to continue to grow the network and then uh, really working on, okay, well, who can we partner with and bring good deals? And so we did a medical office building, right? It would make sense. And so that's also commercial real estate medical office building. And so just making sure we stay solid with our projects because, you know, nothing's perfect, especially in real estate, but you just like rather not do a deal than just do 20 deals a year or something like that. So just keep continuing the base. Do you have a target for when you think that you have enough passive income to you know kind of do this full time? Or are you planning on doing both for foreseeable future? Well, so yeah, I'm still a full-time physician, but maybe ideally I'd go part-time just just because so I can like enjoy more freedom, right? Like I love traveling, I love hiking, I love being outside. So ideally I could go part-time. And really, like, I feel like I could do that now, honestly, because I don't need that much to live. Like, my living costs are not that much. And so I think it's more of a mental game for me or mental space I have to go over. Like, well, I don't want to go part-time if I can't really supplement that income that I'm currently getting, right? So ideally, with the next three to five years, probably go part-time. Hopefully, you don't fall into a trap where it's your quote-unquote part-time and you end up doing full-time work at part-time pay. <laughs> Yes, I don't know. But the nice point is that, like, especially with COVID, like, you just never know, right? And so how can you set yourself up so that, okay, like, okay, even if, like, they talked about, you know, um, decreasing our salaries, uh, because the hospitals weren't able to do surgeries, they weren't able to bring in patients. And so the hospitals lost hundreds of millions of dollars, actually. And so they were thinking, oh, should we cut physician salaries? So it, it kind of just like how COVID is forcing everybody to focus on 
you know, what your true priorities are, right? And so same with, I think, investing or finances. And I know a lot of people, especially physicians, don't like to think about it, but I don't see it as a separate field. I see it as, you know, like, like everything you do really does somehow revolve around money. Like not to like give money like a character, but it's like, well, what do you eat? What do you wear? What do you, you know, like your retirement, if you have kids, like, so think of it in terms of how you can be really intentional with your money rather than seeing it as, you know, something to avoid or like, oh, yeah, I'll retire so I can think about it in 40 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you're talking about how, like, the hospital is thinking about cutting guards pay. Obviously, that's terrible. And it kind of goes back to the whole, like, rich dad, poor dad thing where, like, if you rely on just your job, then these things can happen to you. Like, you can get laid off. You can't get your pay cut. Versus if you try to build out your own business, you try to learn how to invest through, you know, passive income streams like syndications, then you're going to be, you know, quote unquote, better off. Like I'm part of a YouTube mastermind and some of the guys there are making bank. So they're like, oh, yeah, whole COVID thing happened, but my life's fine. I'm getting all this ad revenue anyway. Like I don't have a job. This is normal to me. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's definitely made a lot of people reflect, especially like, and I think like, no matter how high your income, right? Because, and I'm so glad I started investing this way four years ago, because what, like, you know, a lot of tech jobs in the Bay Area, if you're a high income earner, you're not sitting there at the end of the month, like, oh, I, I missed my $300 cash flow rent, you know, or whatever it is, like, you don't have that pressure to be like, oh, I need to have some passive income. But I think just as in a lot of things, like it slowly builds up, you know, it compounds, it cumulatively affects. And so now we're okay, well, maybe I have 5000 a month in passive income. So it's okay if I don't work, you know, five shifts this month or whatnot. So I think, you know, the silver lining of COVID is that to really force people to, to be very intentional, not only about their life, their finances, which is a huge part of it. It's like a big reset, kind of like what happened in 2008, where, I mean, there have been a lot of these great real estate investors who were killing it in 2006, who lost everything in 2008 to 2010, but they have come back with full force in 2012 going forward. So we might see the same thing happen here where people stumble right now, but they'll get back up and they'll be fine. Yeah. And it it just like that goes again to like when you're looking at a team or like, you know, the same fundamentals always apply, but to understand like, you know, a lot of people have done really well because the cycle is done so well, you know? And so how to tease that apart it's hard but just kind of like what we talked about there are certain things you should always look for there are certain red flags that can always you know lead to more questions well sure this has been a very awesome conversation do you have any last tips for our listeners before we end our show today so i always tell people definitely just you know like there's so many ways to invest and you'll hear like great stories and then you'll hear horror stories no matter like you know fix and flips or syndicate or whatever, you know, there's just so many ways. And in great markets and bad markets, you hear good stories and bad stories. So I always want people to really understand like, okay, before you like jump in, think just like we thought, be really intentional. Like, do you want to be, you know, you can maybe 10x your money if you're an active real estate investor, right? But do you want to be active? Do you want to be passive, which actually fits with your lifestyle or philosophy more? And to really think about the opportunity cost, because when you say yes to something, you're saying no to a lot of things, especially if you're investing 50000 or 100000 That's money you could spend elsewhere, right? So what is the true opportunity cost of that money, not only in the investment, but in your life? 
and thinking beyond that as far as your time and your resources, your energy. And so those are two things I think are very much worth exploring rather than, oh, can I 3x my money or can I retire, you know, in a year? Yeah, because you also have to be able to sleep well at night, you know? That's true. Yeah. Awesome. And how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, so just my website, therealestatephysician.com. That's the easiest way. My email is cherry at therealestatephysician.com and happy to jump a call with anybody else. Then, you know, I've talked to like, people for like an hour and a half because you know it's just it's enjoyable to build relationships but most importantly you just I don't want to make sure everyone's informed and so I'll kind of give people like the spectrum of not just syndication but you know to realize there's other ways of real estate and so to make sure that they think it's the right fit yeah yeah I mean it's fun talking to people I have people emailing me and I schedule call with them for 15 minutes and yeah tons of fun and by the way, I know you have an ebook that you wrote. Do you want to give a shout out to that and how people can get a copy of that as well? Uh, yeah. So if they go to our website and they sign up, uh, it's kind of comes in, in their welcome email. So it's about like, you know, it's like 70 pages. So not too much, not too little. But I basically, the reason I wrote it is that it's kind of a primer because I know a lot of investors who are looking, they're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even know what cash on cash means or like. How do I vet a sponsor? And, and the problem is that people are just too overwhelmed and don't know where to start. Then they just don't, you know? So it's written to be like, hey, you could probably read this in an hour and a half, less than two hours for you to be like, oh, okay, I have a good understanding. Like I can move on to my next step, whatever that be to reach out to a sponsor or to be like, oh yeah, now I, I feel at least semi-comfortable looking at deals to be like, is this reasonable? So yeah, it, it's free. Um, I don't sell it. I just give it to anybody who asks me for a copy. So. Awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's very helpful for anyone who wants to learn more about investing in apartment syndications. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Cherry, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks a lot, Sean. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Before you start investing as a passive investor, learn the different rules of thumb and do your research on the different sponsors. Just because one sponsor is popular, it doesn't mean that their investments are a good fit for you. Look at what kind of projects they buy and see if that fits with your investment strategy. Over time, you'll be more experienced and you'll be able to start asking the right questions. You don't need to know everything in this business, but being able to ask the right questions and knowing what to look for will take you a long way. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.